You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It is natural law that all complex systems move from a state of order to disorder. Stars decay, mountains erode, ice melts. People get off no easier. We get old or injured and inevitably slide right back into the elements we were first made from. The organized masterpiece of conception, birth, and maturation is really only two steps forward before three steps back, at least in the physical world. Sometimes, when Charlotte lost a patient, she thought about that and found it comforting, a reminder that she hadn't failed in what was ultimately an unwinnable game. But if she thought about it too long, she had to wonder if her entire medical career was an interminable battle against the will of the universe. She resisted sinking into such rhetoric the night Jane Doe was whisked across Puget Sound in a medevac helicopter to Beacon Hospital's intensive care unit, to Charlotte. It seemed they always came in the middle of the night, the ones from the more remote hospitals on the Olympic Peninsula, West Harbor and Forks and Port Townsend. Charlotte could picture some overwhelmed doctor reaching his breaking point too many hours before the next sunrise, dreading a night of slumping blood pressures and low oxygen levels and erratic heart rhythms, finally picking up the phone to plead for the case for a flight to Seattle. Not that anyone had to plead. They were never turned down. As should be the case with any memorable love story, the first time Rainy Remington saw Bo, she hated him. She didn't have any choice but to hate him. He was so beautiful, so foreign. After all, no exceptional thing can exist for long without a counterbalance. The weight of it would tip a life over. Rainey hated Beau for his skinny frame, scrawny even for a 12-year-old kid still shy of puberty. She hated his pale skin, as coddled as all the city boys who came out to the Olympic National Park for summer camps and vacation Bible schools and back-to-nature classes, all of them soggy and miserable in their L.L. Bean boots and Eddie Bauer parkas. This boy must have borrowed his father's. The wrists drooped over his hands and the hem came nearly to his knees, his stiff blue jeans poking out all mud splattered below. He was standing outside Peninsula Foods underneath the gutter, and a dam of leaves broke loose, spouting a cascade of rainwater directly onto his head. Any reasonable person would have stepped under cover, but this boy pulled his hood back and looked straight up at that stream like he might open his mouth and swallow. His skin was so white, the shadows of his cheekbones were blue. That's how Rainy would have painted him. How she did paint him years later from memory, translucent and frail as Picasso's blue boy. Black hair, a mess of damp points and planes, rain running down his cheeks like tears. A blue-blooded member of the club that didn't want the likes of her. She stared so hard, he finally looked at her, and even from across the street she caught the same ghost-blue color in his eyes. Then a woman walked out of the store and directed the boy to a scuffed red Malibu that Rainey recognized from John Hardy's store, where her grandfather bought his feed. And there was Mr. Hardy at the wheel. She watched them drive down the street and around the bend in the highway until the exhaust fumes disappeared, and she knew exactly what she wanted. That boy gone from Quentin. She never wanted to see him again. 
Carol Casella is the author of the novels Healer and Oxygen. She's a practicing anesthesiologist. Her new novel is Gemini. Thank you for joining me, Carol. Thank you, Rick. It's great to be here. This book, of course, given the title, we can guess there's a lot of <laughs> twinning and dualism in it. But one of the things that struck me most about this book, and this book does a great job of having a, that vision, is that the same person can be two very different people at different points in their lives. We experience our lives as one continuity, but the way you crafted this novel gives us a vision of how we can really be two different people. Mm. I'm, I'm glad you brought that point up. Nobody's nobody's commented on that so far, but, but I think it's very true. And the novel does delve into genetics and DNA. And, and one of the things that fascinates me is how our physiology and our genetic programming turns us into who we are, and yet also how our development in life changes us. And as we change how, as life goes on, how we respond to life, how we become different things um, as we go on. I really like to look at the complexities of people. I, I don't like one-dimensional characters in books. So, You know, this book gives us uh, two very different characters. To begin with, we have Rainey and we have Charlotte. I'd like you to talk about creating these characters, where they came from, when you first encountered them as a writer, and what made you decide to write about them, and tell us their stories. I had written both of the first two novels from a doctor's point of view, <clears throat> and I really felt like it was time to write from a patient's point of view. And that's where Rainey was born, in my imagination. And I, I never like to hear authors say the woo-woo that their characters speak to them. But I have to say, Rainey kind of whispered in my ear through a lot of this book. And uh, I, I would get up in the morning and just start writing her story. And she, she was very vivid to me. I, I could picture her life and her world, which is quite different than my own. She, she's a scrappy young girl who's being raised by her grandfather, who's, who's kind of an odd duck. He believes the end of the world is right around the corner. She has no women in her life, really, and, and has to take care of herself quite a bit. Um, and I would just put her through little adventures on the page in the morning with, with no idea where they would fit into the plot. And uh, then gradually she developed, and, and I started turning a little bit toward Charlotte as well. Now, Charlotte is a physician, so her life is much more familiar to mine. And, and I wanted Charlotte to, to portray and represent the period in my life when I was working in more intensive care settings and taking care of patients who were really critically ill and how doctors balance that that difficult thing of, of trying to decide when we're doing more harm and when we're doing good and how far to go. How much should we do for each patient and where does that balance between ethics and medical care come? I love the sense of medical ethics in this book. It permeates the book in a very low-key manner in that you present us with situations that seem very realistic and things that could happen in real life that you might see on like the local neighborhood news. So I'd like you to just talk about your sensibility as a writer is very low key. Mm. And I talk about keeping things at that level while still maintaining a very intense level of tension and uh, mystery within the structure of the novel. I usually start actually by uh, overwriting I, I do make my characters a little more dramatic, probably less, I'm certain, less realistic in the beginning. And maybe that's how I get to know their, their arc 
through the book, and then I go back on the redrafting and I start cutting that because because they don't feel realistic to me. And in order to to bring them into real life grounding, I need to you know cut out the most extreme action that they do and try to find what would a real person do, a real person who had all the backstory that led to that character's motivations and actions. So hopefully, uh, I still maintain the action as you say and the drama, but but keep the characters feeling real because otherwise you you can't identify with them as a reader. They're they're just black and white on a page as opposed to people that you might want to get to know and, and continue in your life after you close the pages of the book. When we first meet Charlotte, uh, she's brought a Jane Doe, a patient who is um, unconscious and unable mm. and unidentified. And this is a really interesting situation. And I'm wondering if in your work uh, you ever encountered this situation and how much of this the kind of uh, the medical aspects of this book is actually pulled from your life and how you redraft your own life into a book. Mm-hmm. I never write about actual patients that I've had, um, partly because of HIPAA, of course, but um, but all of the experiences that Charlotte goes through, I've had. I've stood in ICUs taking care of young people who've been critically injured um, and, you know, this goes back over my 25 years as a doctor. So when we were first implementing some things that now are pretty commonplace to keep people alive, um, and, of course, we don't always know the outcome. When someone's on a ventilator for a month or more, unconscious in a coma for months, and we're struggling to keep them alive, um, what will they be when they wake up, if they wake up? And, and that's, you know, there are moments that you do cross that line as a physician. You're standing there as a doctor making decisions on a medical basis. And yet the person in you also now and then looks down there and sees a daughter or a sister, um, someone that, that will go on to, to a life afterwards and that we hope will still be a good and valuable life. Um, so, so a lot of it, what Charlotte experiences, did come from my own life. And I intentionally made Rainey a Jane Doe because, to me, it helped Charlotte step over that line where she she kind of becomes – she becomes more personally involved with, with Rainey than she probably should be as a professional. I really liked Rainey as a – meeting her as a child and seeing her development as an artist. Mm. I think thought you did a really good job of creating that – the arc of the artist. And you actually use uh, – there's a – a sentence in here where you say that she could trace her own life through the arc of her own art. And I think that that's an interesting way of looking at the life of an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll hopefully classify myself as an artist here. I hope I'm not cheating there. But I have to say I've seen my own writing evolve, and it does reflect my life in many ways. Not only what I learn about writing, I think I write in a bit more spare voice than I did in my first novel. Um, because I want to get more cleanly to what I'm trying to say and step out of the reader's way. Um, but also, just as you mature and learn more about life, that permeates your work. I mean, I mean, what is an artist doing? An artist is trying to put their view of, of the world from their own internal experience out there for others to share. And, and so naturally, I think it reflects how you've changed as you grow and mature in life and different experiences change you. And in, one of the things that's nice about this book is the kind of tangled web that it weaves in that we have 
we're meeting Rainey and seeing her as a young girl growing up as an artist. And we don't necessarily know what her relationship is Mm -hmm. to Charlotte and Eric. And we see Eric, who is a writer. (laughs) And so I'd like you to talk about writing about a writer because that's another form of art that you have uh, rippling through this book. Yeah. Well, and Eric's role as a science journalist and writer was partly for the plot that he needs to play, the role he needs to play in the plot. Uh, And it worked for that. But but also, of course, it's so tempting to write about a writer (laughs) because there's so many things that you experience that I don't think the general reading public knows, the the trepidation, the ups, the downs, the, the you know, anxiety that goes into creating that first draft when, you know, you put it on the page and it feels great and then you go back and read it the next day and you want to burn it. Um, and so it was really tempting to write that. There were a few places that my editor went back and actually crossed out a line and said, that's too much inside baseball. <laughs> we have a lot of really interesting relationships in that. And I love the relationship between Rainey and her grandfather. And I particularly love her grandfather as a character. I do too. Uh, he's a lot of fun. <laughs> as, a, as someone who grew up during the time of drop drills <laughs> and, and is well familiar with duck and cover, uh, a character who has a bomb shelter out in his backyard is he's right up my alley. Yeah. You know, it's funny. He's kind of right up my alley in a way, too, in an odd way. I I go on hikes. I love to hike. And I mean, you know, my age and my skill level and uh, fitness level, I, I do day hikes that are pretty much right outside my back door. But I always have all the 10 essentials in my backpack as if I might get locked in the wilderness overnight and have to build a snow cave. So I suppose that's part of my own mental makeup. But but also it served as a better metaphor for the book. I mean, the book has much to do with tempor- the temporariness of life and, and what gives life meaning. And it's all temporary, of course. I mean, none of us really get to stay here that long. And, and the idea of being able to hold on to it for, for longer than we're given is, is so tempting. But we don't really get that chance, whether you have a bomb shelter or not. This book brings up a variety of really interesting, obviously, uh, medical questions. And you explore a lot of medical questions in this book. And uh, so I'd like you to talk a little bit about the the Jane Doe patient when we have the this Jane Doe and what it's like to be there when this difference between brain death, mm. uh, still breathing, ventilator, these are really intense decisions. And the spin that you give it is because uh, the character who is in this condition is a Jane Doe, uh, she needs, you, there's an extra layer of hospital bureaucracy, the guardian ad litem. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, of course, what we can do in medicine today is something that we never could have predicted. I mean, 70 years ago, you could have just held Jane Doe's hand and let nature take its course. And now we have the capacity to keep a body alive, potentially even after the brain is is no longer going to function. And that's what we classify as brain death. So the lungs and the heart can still be circulating blood, oxygenating blood, while the brain is really already gone. And, and I'm not sure we always have the ethical wherewithal yet to know what to do with this new power. Um, so that was part of what I was exploring here in that question. When you said 70 years ago we would just been able to hold somebody's hand, 
I mean, I tend to think, well, that's better. Mm. All this um, technology has done is to complicate our decision-making process. And we are at this odd place where our ability to see what's happening in the brain is getting better. And there's no doubt about that, the MRI and all the various uh, new forms of brain imaging. But we're not able to tell if the soul has left the body yet. And right. that's the, the real question, isn't it? And where does that soul reside? You know, even in a comatose patient, where where is that soul residing? In this case, as, as you mentioned, the hospital assigns a guardian ad litem because what occurs in real life is you get to this stage where you realize the brain probably is not going to recover. There's a very small chance, and yet the body is still alive. And most of the time, family comes in and helps make those decisions. Would this patient be an organ donor? Should we continue to pursue every measure? Or are we causing more harm and pain and suffering? But of course, in Rainey's case, the Jane Doe's case, she doesn't have family. And so the hospital steps in. And, and that would actually happen. The, the hospital would actually assign potentially a professional guardian or guardian ad litem, that combination, to come in and serve as her family. It, it's just, are humans meant to have that power? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that was ever nature's plan. <laughs> well, this is something that's really, I mean, we just had a big headline case here in Oakland of a woman who was declared brain dead and her family wanted to keep her alive and the hospital wanted to take her off the ventilator. And so she, they had to sue the hospital to move the daughter's body somewhere where they would were willing to keep her alive. Yeah. And so this is a th this book I think does a great job of exploring that territory. It's complicated territory. And there's a case as you know probably in Texas that's very similar. There've been several cases like this. Uh, and I certainly don't try to answer the question in the book. I I'm not going to in any way try to pretend that I'm trying to answer this question about when we should pursue more aggressive care, when we should be letting patients go. It's, it's huge. I'm not a medical ethicist, and I don't try to answer it in the book. Um, but I do try to present a scenario, fictional scenario, that readers can get lost enough inside the story to begin to feel it on an emotional level and maybe maybe look at it from a point of view that they've, they've not been able to grasp when they just read the headlines about someone else. So taking them inside the hospital, inside these patients' lives as people, people who, you know, have the same history and complexity that we all do. And, and, and I think it's a kind of a platform for, for readers to talk about it, to think about it, maybe from a fresh perspective. Really, the whole question of this is something we need to be talking about more as a society. There's a couple of different love stories that are, are twinned through the book. So I'd like you to talk about creating tension, not just with the medical stories, but also with the love stories that I think are, you know, the human stories that are at the core of this book. Oh, that was fun to write. Actually, there are several different, almost three different love stories that are going on here. And, you know, part of what I was doing is looking at how we define love. I've been married for 23 years now. It's a great marriage. I love my husband. But I love him in a very different way than when I fell in love with him. And I love him in a different way than I would have fallen in love with him when I was 15, had we met. And love changes that way. And what holds people together in a marriage is sometimes a different kind of love than, than you know, the love that creates creates children, the love that that uh, makes you do foolish things when you're young. So I wanted to look at that. And then the other thing that I was doing is, you know, as we've mentioned, the book does have um, question 
mortality in some ways, and, and there are some sad things about that question, but there are also some very joyful things that come out of being mortal humans, one of which is love. I mean, could, would we love as passionately? Would we, would we love as intensely if we were not mortal? Um, I had a professor once in college that said, you know that there would be no poetry if there were no, uh, there would be no poetry if there were no death. And we were all 19 at the time and looked at each other kind of bewildered. We were never going to die. We had no idea what he was talking about. But now that I'm older, I realize exactly what he's talking about. You know, too, this book has a lot to say about American health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> not, not necessarily a lot of good things about the, the, the economic aspects of American health care because you give us doctors and the doctors in this book are universally, you know, compassionate, extremely caring, you know, passionate about their work, compassionate about their patients, but trapped within an economic system that is, you know, it's making sausage. It's true. <clears throat> our our healthcare delivery system in this country really developed quite piecemeal. And it is where it is because of many different influences and factors that brought it here. One great example is the fact that so many people are insured through their employer. Does that make sense? Should your employer be choosing and providing your health care? It doesn't really make sense, but it's, it's how we've grown, and that's the system that we have. We have wonderful health care in the United States, the best, but it's, it's not equally available to everyone. We have a tiered system. I see it all the time. And it may not be apparent when you're critically ill and you've been admitted to the best hospital because you're about to die and they're going to give you the very best because nobody's going to come in and say, you don't have insurance. We're going to give you the not the best. But before you get to that stage, when you have your early diabetes, your early hypertension, and you don't have insurance, you're not going to get the right care. And then you'll end up (laughs) in a critical situation. It's going to be a hard thing to fix. The ACA is not going to fix it. I don't know how we're going to fix it, but but it's there and it's real. And I think people working in the healthcare system see it better, more clearly than the average person walking around out there who may have fine insurance and think that the system is working great for everybody. Well, if we were to follow the example of the rest of the civilized world, we'd have single-payer coverage from the government of the United States, and then our corporations would be much more competitive. They would. We spend a huge amount of increased productivity in this country chasing increased costs of health care. In fact, much of the the rise in productivity has actually gone in corporations to pay for increased health costs as opposed to going into the wages of their employees. We are the only Western democracy that does not consider health care a human right. And I don't understand that. Um, so I, I just I feel like it's something that we, we need to address at some point. But I'm not running for politics here, so it won't be me that fixes it. <laughs> but I think that in a nicely crafted work of fiction like this, we can experience it on a variety of levels. Uh, uh, Rainey's grandfather experiences it, I think, best. And I so I'd like you to talk about creating, crafting this character who has to deal with some of the aspects of, you know, what happens to us as we grow old. Because 
as with growing, as with being extremely sick, what we couldn't do 70 years ago, the same thing has happened to the care of the elderly. I mean, 70 years ago, uh, we weren't living as long, and maybe that was better for us. Well, it's a huge question. Right now, it's estimated that about 30 percent of Medicare dollars are spent on people in the last, the five percent of people who are in the last year of their life. Um, we spend a huge part of our budget on that. And of course, you know, we get sicker as we get older. We keep people alive longer. Um, we used to die of accidents. You know, a tree fell on you, you're in a car accident and you died. Um, but now we can keep people alive. We can, we can, you know, give them insulin. We can take care of um, their heart attacks. And so we're extending life. And that's a great thing. But we've got to figure out how to pay for it. And the current, if you look at current savings and current, the current Medicare budget, I think it's easy to see that it's not sustainable the way we've got it structured right now. Uh, I'm all for the tree falls on me uh, <laughs> system of health care, to be honest. Uh, one of the things I think that's very interesting in this book is you have a little bit of a what looks like a crime story uh, in this book because you have a character who is in the hospital and if they live – it's a hit and run. If they die, it's potentially a murder. And that's a really interesting way of creating tension on two levels, both as a whodunit and a medical mystery as well. Right, right. That was that was fun to write. It was fun to research. Um, totally out of my arena. So I did a lot of research on that. I you know, got to talk to the traffic patrol people and a wonderful um, deputy out in Kitsap County. And how would you investigate this? You know, especially in such a rural area, resources are limited. So it did, you know, I put that in partly to increase tension in the book, but I but I also thought it was a fun concept to play with. Sometimes I just start down a research path and I get, I get so excited about that, that, that it takes the book in a new direction. Now, uh, one of the things I think, too, that is interesting are these two narratives. It goes back and forth between Rainey and Charlotte. And, and I'd like you to just, just talk about creating that back and forth because we experience one's perspective, then the others, and then you go back and forth. And there's this tension is we know that these two stories are going to intersect at some point. We have to figure out how, and as they start to come closer, one aspect makes clear, but that yields to yet another mystery. So I'd like you to talk about creating and weaving together the two stories of Rainey and Charlotte. It was not easy. <laughs> I actually wrote this as two separate books. I wrote Charlotte's story and I wrote Rainey's story. And initially I, I knew that they would play off one another, but as I got further into the characters, I found it was easier as a, as a writer to lose myself in one story before I broke away and wrote the other. So I wrote two separate books. And I always sign these contracts saying I'll turn in my book in a year and then, you know, it becomes 18 months. And I think they're getting used to, to the fact that I am actually an every four-year author. But um, so I wrote my editor at the end of creating these two books and I said, yay, the book is done. Just give me a couple of weeks to like splice and weave together these two stories. It'll be great. And then I started splicing and weaving the two stories together and realized – I had to completely rewrite them. It was another year and a half to realize how these stories needed to fit together so that the mysteries augmented each other instead of disrupted each other. And I also discovered a lot about the characters in that process. It, it helped me figure out how these characters really played off one another, needed one another, were similar, were different, 
and and what the bigger themes of the book were. You know, uh, we talked a little bit about art and the fact that uh, Rainey's an artist, and one of the key pieces of evidence as to what's going on in this book revolves around a, a portrait that she does. Mm-hmm. And I think you do a great job of showing us that same portrait at different points in the narrative in different points in time. And, and it's, a, it's a lot of fun for us as readers to twig to go, oh, wait, wait, this is very interesting. <laughs> so talk about uh, using uh, art to uh, ratchet up the tension and introduce, I think, some really interesting concepts. Oh, thanks. Well, that's another thing that kind of surprised me as I was writing it. I knew I wanted Rainey to be an artist. She just came to me that way. And so um, it was just kind of a piece of her backstory But then as the book evolved, and I'm trying to show her relationship to these other characters as life, her life, goes on, um, I found that that just made the perfect touchstone. And, uh, you know, I'd like to tell you there were many, many deep thematic reasons for doing that. But but in some ways, it was a bit of a a plot device, but one that I really enjoyed carrying through the book. You know, uh, as I read this book... One of the things I thought was that um, you do such a good job of there are so many really nice sentences in the prose and some really nice and you use those for to create some great character moments. And there's one where uh, uh, Charlotte's talking with Eric and she hears Eric articulate what must show on her face. And, and that makes her realize just how how much she feels that way. And I think that. Uh, that observation of seeing when we are the theory of mind, when we're looking at somebody and we can see how they're seeing us, that how that informs our own vision of ourselves. That's a really interesting uh, device. Well, and that's how we live. I mean, really, and and it's one of the challenges as a writer, because as a writer, you're presenting the scene from as a description and trying to take that into the reader's imagination to flesh it out. You know, I can't tell you what voices sound like. I can't tell you exactly what a face looks like. I think it's actually better to hint at those things and then let the reader create them. But one of the subtle things is exactly how we play off of each other. And we do all the time. I mean, an in-person conversation is so different than one over text message or email. I I hope we're not losing that. You know, (laughs) when was the last time my children called me? They called. But I get an awful lot of text messages. And um, we, you know, we're primates. We we see each other's faces. We are very programmed to do that and respond to how we make another person feel about us. You also uh, do a good job of using the setting of, of the, you know, the Olympic Peninsula in, in particular in Seattle and Washington. So I'd like you to talk about creating that. And I really love... Uh, the way, and this seems kind of true across the United States, how there are so many places that have just some kind of stunning natural beauty. And you'll be walking through these, you know, the Olympic port, the forest on the Olympic Peninsula. And then you'll find the town where it's stunning poverty. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah. I love writing about the natural environment where I live in the Pacific Northwest. It's the reason I moved there. And it's it's the reason we put up with the rain because I've always said one day of sunshine in the Pacific Northwest is worth 10 days of rain. So, but, but it does play a role in the novel as well, the natural setting. It's, you know, nature is something that the natural environment is, it is uh, there before we arrive, it's there after we leave. It's very permanent. It's also as gorgeous and beautiful it is. It's a bit heartless. You know, I love to hike, as I said, but maybe I take the ten essentials with me because I know that if the snow falls, if you get caught in a storm, nature is is very, you know, impersonal and uh, it would happily leave me there to die on the mountain. And and that's kind of something that we have to live with, right? So So it's, I don't know, it's a true pleasure to write about the area that I live. But also at the same time, as you mentioned, amidst these gorgeous coastlines and gorgeous forests that draw the tourists to these beautiful little resorts, we have these towns that used to depend on fishing and forestry, um, reservations, many reservations out on the Olympic Peninsula. And they, they are struggling with a lot of poverty, a lot of economic waste. You use the natural setting to highlight the tininess of of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> well put. <laughs> well put, especially if you go into the Olympic rainforest up near where I live and you look up those trees and realize how small you are <laughs> and how very short your lifespan is. <laughs> Charlotte is like any woman. She, she's, or, or I guess, she's like Charlotte. <laughs> we get her at right after the breakup of one man, and she eventually lets another man into her life, Eric, he's the writer. And she's already, before she meets him, she's already uh, contemplating artificial insemination. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting character touch. Tell us why you gave her that. You know, some of that's probably drawn from, from my own life as a professional woman, Choosing, especially back when I was making those choices, choosing to be a, a high-level professional in a, in a busy job like medical school, residency, taking care of patients, having a full-time medical practice, there was that risk. You know, I, I've known a lot of women who kept saying, oh, I'll have my children after medical school, then after residency, then after I get my practice established. And then they got there and they discovered they couldn't get pregnant. And should we have to give up one over the other? And this this urge to to nurture and raise a child is so powerful and and i think it you know at some point it really can can change who you are and how you feel about your decisions that you've made in your life and that's the point that that charlotte is at you know too you have uh, some really interesting notions and visions of family life. They're from uh, Rainey and her grandfather to Rainey and her own families. And so I'd like you to just, because what I really like about this book is that these families all seem very real. They're somewhat imperfect. Everything's kind of a, like a little bit askew and flawed. Well, I did want the book to explore family. Family family has a lot of different definitions now. It's it's not what it was in the 1950s, nor was it in the 1950s. We just defined it that way. But um, family is, is so important. I mean, think about your life, all the things you fill your life with, your job that keeps you busy, your work that keeps you busy. Imagine doing that with no one around you that loved you, that cared. 
how much meaning would it have? It's, it's really the people that you're connected to that gives everything else in your life meaning. And we don't have to find that in the traditional way. We can find that in many ways. I'd like you to talk a little bit, too, about creating Rainey's various families because she starts off in love with one man, meets another, and that works out. Well, I think you do a, a good job of showing us families that just work because that's all there is. And especially, I really like the, the character of Dave. I think you did a great job with Dave. He, who's, oh, Dave. <laughs> he's an interesting fellow, I think. He was an interesting guy to write. I wrote that character over and over a number of times because he he walks a line. We don't really know David in some ways, his worst and his best. Um and uh, I don't think David knows himself quite as well as he should. But Rainey, Rainey is, as I said, a scrappy young woman who knows how to take care of herself. And she's passionate. She, she falls in love, as you said, in several ways and in times in this book. She also reaches a point at which she realizes that coupling with someone may, um, may be done because we need each other to just get through life. And and that's true. I mean, historically, if you look at marriage, the idea of marrying for love is relatively new. Marriage is in some ways a business. That's, that's how you ran the farm. That's how you ran your small business and how you raised your children. And so there's that aspect that I wanted to play off of too. When do we choose one? When do we, when do we give up one for the other? When you are creating character of Eric, I think he's also another really very interesting fellow beyond just being a writer. You kind of hopscotch in time, and we get to know him at different times and in different ways. I'd like you to talk about creating Eric because he gets, I think, exactly one chapter to himself. One. But <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> that's how guys fare. That's how he fares. <laughs> but... That, that said, I think that you do a good job of weaving them through the other stories and giving us visions of this man in different ways, where he's really essentially a very different person. Yeah. We see Eric primarily through Charlotte's view of him. Um, so, And part of that is just because I did want the narration to be contained primarily from Rainey and Charlotte. But Eric, in many ways, his story and his evolution is where the heart of the novel lies, the heart of what I'm really trying to say, which I can't say here, or you might not want to read the novel anymore but um, because it would give it away. But um, he goes through the biggest transformation of all the characters, and, and it's really his transformation that holds the key to what Gemini is about. As a, a, a story that involves medicine, this also involves... Uh, the ethics and the problems of living with different kinds of medical conditions that can change, you know, your perception of your life, change who you are able to be. And as a doctor and anesthesiologist, you must have seen this. So I'd like you to talk about this from both your professional side and, you know, taking you can't use real patient stories but, of course, all of that informs your writing process. Sure. I, I mean, I think in many ways we are all defined by our health. We don't think about that when we're healthy. But the first time you 
say, have a major injury and you're in pain, chronic pain, uh, think about how that affects your daily work, your daily life, your ability to connect with people, your ability to, to love, to be spontaneous. Um, our health has so much influence over who we are and what we become. And, of course, when something serious arises and we are suddenly facing the fact that we are mortal, which most of us, thankfully, manage to go through daily life not thinking about, it changes, I think, our appreciation of life, uh, how, we're, how we make decisions. And, uh, and I wanted to, to show that. I've, I have seen plenty of that as a physician. I've taken care of plenty of chronically ill patients. But also, this book was quite influenced over its three or four year history of being written because about five of my very close friends have um, died over this period of time. I wouldn't say very close, but five people that I, I know well and several close friends did die over this period of time. It was, it was strange to be writing this book and have that occurring. Um, and several other close friends have had very serious cancers. And so I was suddenly on the other side of it as a physician trying to help them explain or them understand what they were being told by their caregivers and then also realizing how hard it was to um, to talk to them about things that I could talk to a patient about. You know, I could be objective and talk to a patient, but suddenly it's a friend, and, and it's been so hard to cross that line personally. That's a really interesting uh, observation and thought. As you wrote this book, there's a very you have a very interesting conclusion, and I'd like you to talk about uh, discovering that and, and where you discovered that, and just talk a little bit about crafting that into the narrative was that always there or did you did you discover it it was there from pretty early on as a concept i i do a lot of research for my books a lot mm -hmm. and that research changes the books as they develop because it's very important to me that the science in the book is accurate i don't you know you can do whatever you want in fiction but if i'm going to be translating some science i want it to be accurate so as I started researching genetics, which I knew the book would be centered in, and I came across some of these stories and went further with them, I was fascinated at what I found. And um, luckily, I live in Seattle, where some of this research goes on, where some of the experts in these fields are. And I was able to correspond with them and get it you know, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So it's, I mean, it's... Uh, can read at moments as extreme. It's it's not as extreme as you would think if you begin to, to look into it yourself. And it's, I, I'm always amazed at how miraculous biology is and at how little we really know about it. We think we know the body so well, and every day we discover more how much we don't know yet. <laughs> you know, when you say that, it makes me think about... Uh... We want to go to alien planets. We want to go look at Mars and all this stuff. But we really don't even know our own planet very well. And it's interesting. You can rat that. It's true. You can ratchet that back to the human body itself. And what I think you've done a great job of is finding those aspects of science that are both grounded in real and everyday life woven it through the character stories, but also made it very entertaining. So I'd like you to just talk about using the science to explore the ethics, explore the plot, but also keeping the science itself entertaining and explained enough that we understand, but not explained to the point that we're feeding 
feel like we're reading a textbook. Well, I'm glad you took it that way. I, I hope a lot of people do. I know sometimes people, you know, like science and love it, and sometimes it can uh, feel like too much for some people. But I try to write it so that you can skip those parts if you don't like it. But um, I started actually before I was writing fiction. I was writing in the science world. I was doing some science writing. I, I wrote for the Gates Foundation about some of their grants, and I would need to explain the diseases for the lay public. And I did some other writing along those lines. And trying to describe science in an entertaining, engaging way is really a challenge, but it's a fun challenge. It's one that I like. And I think science is critical for more people to understand. We, t we tend to read the headlines in the morning paper, oh, look at this fact about cancer, about food, about diet, about whatever it is. But people don't ever go back frequently, usually, don't go back to the papers that those came from. And so we're taking the headline as if it's, if it's the final conclusion. And I think the general public needs to be better educated about how to, um, how to assess information, how to really look at where we're getting information and figure out what can we count on, what is a spin, what's not to be counted on, and what's just being turned into a headline. One of the things this novel does best is to put us in the minds of characters and in their, the lives of characters who find themselves becoming more and more involved and more and more entwined by what medicine can and can't do, what the system can and can't deliver, and at all levels, whether it's the grandfather or, or the woman in intensive care, two very different kinds of medicine. And the job of fiction is to do that in a manner that really engages us and makes those kind of into memories as opposed to uh, just a series of facts. Right. I think you need to experience on an, an emotional level to really take in information like that and, and make your own conclusions. It, it can't just be the facts presented. It needs to be your own emotional experience within it. And that's why I like writing fiction, because through a story, I can get you emotionally engaged and, and help you kind of go on that journey internally, as opposed to just being delivered information. So yeah, I love writing about that. Carol Casella's new novel is Gemini. Thank you for joining me, Carol. Thank you so much, Rick. It was great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.